You know, everybody remembers their first car, don't they? Your first car, you, you, everybody. And if you sit around and people talk about it, it's always an interesting conversation because people are connected with their first car, despite the fact that generally it's the worst car you ever had. Uh, it's, it broke down on you more than anything else. And they, they're always incredibly uh, amazing. The car, if you think about it, if you kept your first car, it would be a classic today. Now, I actually did keep my first car because it is a classic. Uh, this, is, this is my first car. I still have this. Uh, that's what it looked like when we bought it. Um, we painted it since then and stuff. But, that's, but this, is the, this is the oldest photo I can find of it. I had washed it, so it looks good. I, I have to say, that looks way better than it really looked uh, when we first got it. And you know what's amazing? That's a 72 Chevy Nova. And when we bought it, there's a set budget in our family. You only had so many so much money dad would give you to go buy a car. And I wanted to buy a classic, but they're so expensive. Mustangs, Camaros, really expensive. And when I bought that in about 2004, it was considered like it will be classic soon. And so we bought it for really cheap. And now I feel old because a 72 Nova is definitely a classic now. But I bought that car and it took years. We had this master plan. We're going to put a different motor in it, transmission. We're going to paint it. Uh, but my dad's the car guy, and I'm the flashlight guy. So I'm, I'm waiting on his, his schedule to come to the point. And so for years, this thing sat, and it was like my friends knew, like, yeah, Sam has a car that will be cool someday, but right now he borrows the minivan when he wants to go out. Um, but I remember I used to, in high school, I would sit inside the car to do my homework, I would. I would go out and I'd sit in the car and it was just parked like we didn't have anywhere to put it. So it was like out in the grass and the grass is growing up into it. You know what I mean? Um, it allowed me to get on top of the bees because for some reason bees are like old cars, are like mansions. They move in. But I sat in it and, um, and just did all my homework in it because it's like waiting for the time for it to come through. There's something about those like hanging on to the promise, going to see it, being around it as we wait for it to come around. Uh, my parents, I remember hearing from them that when they bought their mobile home that was going to go on to my grandparents' lot until they temporarily saved up and bought a home, they would go to Burger King and they would buy Whoppers because they were 99 cents apparently at the time, and they would eat them and just look at the mobile home inside the parking lot before, like, where eventually they would pull it out of. Uh, there's something about remembering those promises. And we find those that were there as the promises being fulfilled they cherished them, and it meant something to them. It meant something to them that, that caused them to break out into song and to really absorb it. Hope in the Advent is, is more really than even just joy at the, at the infant Christ of Jesus coming into the world. It is a joy for what this means and where it's going, what the promises are, and what we will have one day, like sitting in your one day will be a classic rusted out car waiting for the day that it will be. We hope in the future, uh, that's when we can really see the hope of the incarnation. And today, we've been going through a series. We're looking at the songs around the Advent. Almost every song in the New Testament happens around the Advent story. Uh, there are times when people were struck so deep with the meaning of what was happening that it caused them to burst into praise or praise is coming from heaven. And today, we're actually going to go into that heavenly praise each song has a traditional title to it. We've, we've seen the, uh, the Magnificent, that was the name of Mary's song. The Benedictions, the name of Zechariah's. The Angel's traditional song is called the Doxology. So today we read the story of the Doxology. 
and uh, look at who did it go to, what did it mean, what was the power of it. And we're going to begin this in Luke 2, uh, chapter 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I give you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. You know, there's a lot of romance around the image of a shepherd and this idea of just these peaceful people. I think it comes from maybe the Old Testament more than anything. And in the Old Testament day, in David's day, that image was rather true. It's sort of like if you really met a cowboy, they might not be what you think they are. Like they had this, this romantic idea. We have a romantic idea of what shepherds were, but they're a little bit different than that. You see, in David's day, the farms were family owned and it was a family business. And so the one that kept the sheep was usually the youngest son. So the youngest son would go out and he might have helpers, but they were all related and the sheep belonged to them and they protected them in a personal way. This is the family sheep. Jesus refers to this dynamic of the difference between hired hands and the owners is that the hired hand does not protect the sheep. And when trouble comes, they flee. In the time of the first century, when this story is happening, when Jesus' story is happening, the small farms are all bought out by major and essentially conglomerate investors. And these, these families would own different people's farms. And the shepherds were not family people at all. They weren't children. They didn't, uh, the sheep didn't belong to them. And what you find is that the kind of person who would be willing to live in the wilderness and be filthy under minimum pay is the kind of person who doesn't belong in polite society. And shepherds at this time have a terrible reputation. There's someone who wrote a lot of stuff about Jewish culture in the region during the occupation, during the time of Jesus. His name's Josephus. He writes a lot about the culture, what people thought, what people, how people perceived Rome and how they perceived their own people. And he wrote something about shepherds. He said they were dishonest and crooked and had a way of confusing mine with thine. They were thieves. They were trespassers. They would give reports back of like, yeah, the, a sheep fell off a cliff and we had to eat it. And you wonder, how many sheep did you eat from the thing, from, from your flock that you're supposed to be keeping and claimed that they were injured? They would trespass and they would steal. There was sort of this idea of we can't leave this side of the field open because shepherds are nearby and they'll come and they'll steal our produce. They were very uh, difficult people. And it's where basically it was, it was like the Australia of the day. The penal colony was to go be a shepherd and you would get kicked out. In fact, the uh, shepherds were banned from taking part in religious ceremonies. They're considered ceremonially unclean. Uh, furthermore, the, uh, there's a, a code that said that shepherds' testimony in court couldn't be uh, accepted as evidence because they were so dishonest. And so they have this horrible reputation, and we miss it, but the people who would have read this would have thought, shepherds, seriously? I cannot believe that's who it first came to. This isn't the glamorous thing that we uh, can sometimes play it up to. It's the rather scandalized. It attracted a certain type of worker. In fact, as I was thinking about who, who would I relate this most likely to in today's culture, probably the best thing would be is, what if the angels appeared and sang songs to a homeless camp downtown? It would be similar. It'd be similar. It'd be the same kind of people that we don't allow places, that they come into stores and everyone watches them and everyone closes their handbags and everyone's keeping an eye on what are they doing. They stink. They seem unclean. People feel um, push, they, they feel that repulsion, that desire to push them away. And that's the astonishment of who this comes to, of who the doxology will be saying to. These are the recipients of an amazing proclamation. 
going on, the angels continue to speak. And they say, uh, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. There's a triple title here of Jesus that personifies who he is, who he will be, and what those men needed very urgently. He is a savior. And these are men that desperately need saving. He's Messiah, he's meaning he is the one that they've been waiting for. The line of David has produced the Savior that, will, that is to come, that is the Messiah, the chosen one. And even though they, can be, they are pushed out of religious festivities, essentially told, you can serve Israel, but you are not Israel. And the fact that, in fact, there's something interesting about these particular shepherds is that sheep were not kept near Bethlehem except for one purpose. Bethlehem was near Jerusalem, and the temple would keep their sheep out there to bring in for sacrifice meaning that these people that are banned from the service and being banned from going and seeing the sacrifices given were likely caring for the lambs that would be taken for sacrifice. And yet they find that they, it's still their Messiah. They're still Israel. It's still, their, it's still their Savior. And he is the Lord, which means that he has the authority to do whatever he wants. And if he shines his light and lifts up these humble men, who could choose against him? And to Paul says something like this. Uh, he says that if, Christ, if God is for us, who can be against us? If Christ has chosen you and lifted you up, who could have a word against you? And this is an incredible proclamation. You, the, the, the Messiah prophecy has been going on for a long time. It's actually one of the first prophecies ever given in Scripture, given by God himself, that from Eve, from the woman, would come a chosen one that would crush the head of the serpent, and it begins to grow. There begins to be more. Moses speaks of a Savior that will come. It's spoken that that will come through David, so these promises get more and more specific as the nation waits for the chosen one to come and to deliver them. And the promise has always sounded the same. One day the Messiah will come. One day he will come, he will come, he will come. The doxology is incredible because it's the first time it's said the way that it'll be said for the rest of the New Testament, for the rest of history, the way we say it now, the Messiah has come. To be the recipient of that is a grand cosmological historical honor given to these lowly men. This is an incredible promise given to humble men. What does, the, what, what does the Savior, Messiah, Lord, do for all people? What is his promise? What will he do? And the angels continue. And suddenly a great company, meaning more angels, appear. The heavenly host appeared with the angel and praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. This amazing declaration of peace. And there's this... Um, there's something that probably music people appreciate it, but the highest to lowest image that's in it, that from the highest heaven, meaning that if there are layers to heaven, we're talking from the throne room of heaven all the way down to man, this praise, this doxology, this celebration is being held. Elena and I, we got tickets to go see Handel's Messiah last night. And I, and I had never, I didn't know what Baroque music was, and now I do. And it was great, but it was long, and it got really hot in there. But before it did, there was a really interesting, enjoyable part. It's always trippy the day before you're going to speak on a passage that, like, you hear it. And it's in, the, it's in Handel's Messiah. This passage is in it. If you're not familiar, it's a classical music piece, and every now and again, someone gets up and very dramatically sings part of, of the Messiah's story. Um, and they do this part, and the composer, Handel, did something interesting. 
and this is 300 years ago, but when it says the highest heavens, the people in the choir that have the highest voices, they sing and the people with the deepest say, and men below on earth. And then the men below on earth gets higher and higher and higher until they're joined together. And he was a very deep thinker, Handel. He, he thought these things through. He was praying a lot. And actually said he was struck so much by uh, godly inspiration, he composed it in 24 days. And it's a three and a half hour long concert. And I can testify, it takes three and a half hours to hear all of Handel's Messiah. Um, it was beautiful, though. I don't mean to, to put it down at all. I just found that part, that composing, interesting. And I think it captures a bit what's happening here, that from the highest heavens to the lowest, heaven and earth are being sewn back together through the Messiah. And they're being sewn back together through peace. And to declare peace is an interesting thing because Rome's declaring peace at this time. This is what they called the peace of Rome, or what you would say in Latin, the Pax Romana. Rome did um, a move where they basically, there was a time that when it got into winter, everybody went home. And then when it got snow, and when the snow thawed and everything was fine, people went to war. There's even a reference to this kind of dynamic in David's story. It says, when the time of war had come, David stayed at home in the palace, and it's the beginning of his Bathsheba story. So there's this, like, it's wartime. It's almost like sports. Like, when, it's, when your football's ready, we all go play, but it was war. Now, what Rome did is that they had defeated Egypt. They defeated Carthage. They defeated um, Persia. They defeated everybody to the point to where they ran the show, and they had an army so great and so powerful that no one dared test it, and war stopped breaking out. And they declared peace. They said, our empire has brought an unprecedented level of peace. It's the peace of Caesar, the Pax Romana, and war had ceased. But we have to say, especially in, in family relationships, our own relationships with our friends, there isn't peace just because there's a lack of conflict. You can get to a spot where you decide not to have the fight or you pretend it didn't happen and there isn't really peace. And so what we find is that, yes, there was an open war. People aren't lining up. There's not rebellions. Mark Anthony's been defeated and Rome is secure and together and the the peace era has begun in the sense there's no war. But there's still oppression. There's still uh, inequity. There's still evil that is afoot. The, the Pax Romana didn't lift oppression. It didn't end pain or starvation, poverty, slavery, racism, sexism, injustice in the world around Rome. Peace as man defines it. It's not as God defines it. And I know the video I'm about to share, I've shared before, but I feel like it's just, even if, if we remember it, it's good to see it again and to be refreshed. So I wanna, I'm going to play a video before I'll just set it up for you. This is a, a group from Portland called the, the Bible Project. They want to take the themes and concepts, motifs of the Bible, make them approachable to people through uh, some beautiful illustrations. And so this is their video they've done on the biblical concept of peace. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. 
This is why Shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their Shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. I think what we see, you can clap, that is a good video, isn't it? I, uh, the, the, the need for being whole at harmony with, with ourself, with the world, with the relationships around us runs so deep. I, I see it honestly in advertisements. And when you watch TV, Think about what, is, what's, what, what are they trying to tell you? They, they used to say stuff like, if you buy this vacuum, it'll vacuum really well. Now they're essentially saying, if you buy this vacuum, your whole life will be brought into a reine. It'll be brought into peace. You watch these commercials and it'll be this family and they're all dressed in the morning, early morning light, come their hair combed, they're all clean. And there's one blender on this perfectly clean countertop and they're all laughing and smiling as they watch it blend. This healthy food that will just unify this, this perfect family brought into total harmony with each other. That is not my house in the morning. I mean, if I have time that I'm making a smoothie, it means the first three breakfasts I tried to make Victoria, she wouldn't eat. So now we're doing the peanut butter chocolate smoothie thing again. I've got it going, the whole countertop's a mess. I got them dressed twice now because they keep messing up their clothes. We got to get out the door. We're late. And then UPS knocks on my door because Elena bought more stuff online when she promised me she would stop. They don't put that in a commercial, do they? 
They're not going to add like, okay, your, your life's a real mess, but at the end, you will have one smoothie. <laughs> we want peace so bad. We want to have this, this harmony. And I, I really, as you watch ads today, if you're going to watch football, the ads between, watch them as if it were the Super Bowl and see. Every last one of them wants to make you think that if you buy that car, if you get that close, if you get this vacation package, if you just do this one thing, it will bring your life to harmony. Look how happy they are as they use it. It might be the deepest desire that we have. Even though we live in a country that's been blessed that we haven't had open war on our shores in a very long time. Or we're not necessarily afraid of, of gunfire outside of our doors, but we are worried about finding peace and harmony in our lives, and it is missing with all of us. An absence of war is man's definition of peace, but Christ comes to make people whole. And that's why there's, when I first read it, you know, you hear the, the there's, I forget actually which Christmas carol it is, but it quotes the, the doxologist says, peace on earth and goodwill to men. And then you read it, and it's a little more specific, peace on earth and goodwill to those on whom his favor rests. Um, and it's interesting when you, once you understand what peace really means, and you can see that to receive true irene, true shalom, complete wholeness, it's for people who are made whole in Jesus. Yes, the, the, the enemies of those people, once they're saved, might get a freedom from conflict with that individual, but does peace reign inside them unless Christ reigns inside of them? A deep peace of the season, that's the gift, that's the promise given to these men. And it's amazing to watch the, the wholeness reach these unwholesome, these men, and what happens next. When the angels had left them and had gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby uh, was lying in the manger. Remember, that was their sign the angels gave them. Uh, when they had seen him, they, uh, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up these things in her heart and pondered them. And the shepherds uh, returned, glorifying, God, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. It wasn't to leaders, and it's not to, to the high priests that, were, that this amazing doxology is given. It was given to the lowest in that society. Of the people waiting for the promise, it, found, it finds them first. And we find that they pick up where the angels left off. Do they have their own doxology, their own praise, their own worship? The kingdom has come to the lowest caste of this caste society. And the light has shined on the darkest places. You see, they leave praising because Christ has filled some brokenness in part. In part, not in full yet but in part, and the promise of the future is something that they are too excited about to not tell other people, not sing, not dance, not worship. It's a deep and amazing thing to hold it, even though the promise isn't fulfilled yet. This isn't Jesus on the cross. This isn't Jesus ascending into heaven. It's not Jesus enthroned with the Lord in heaven. It's not even Jesus returning and, end, and bringing an end to the promise of wholeness and peace that we're longing for. It's an infant, but it was enough to get their faith bursting into song. What we find is that Jesus comes urgently to those who need him urgently. 
as heaven touches down, the first place it goes to, the first zip code, the first encampment, the first ones it speaks to are those that needed him so badly, and it changed them. Honestly, if there is anyone in this story that represents the average Christian in this whole thing, it would be the shepherds, the lowly, the sinful, the unworthy, those that weren't asking for something, yet heaven gave them the blessing anyway. It was for them. Sometimes you wonder, is such peace, is such harmony really something that's supposed to be mine? But the fact is, is that all who are in Christ are destined for it. It is their destiny to be fulfilled, to be made whole. And just at the holding of it, just at the just being there, sitting in the cab of that car of promise, eating whoppers and looking at the stupid mobile home, or seeing a baby that you've heard is going to do something great is enough to lift the spirit. You know, it just like uh, my car isn't complete. My car, actually, because of how busy I am and, and the shortness in finances, we haven't been able to continue to invest in it. And it's at my parents' house because I think it's less likely to get stolen there under a car cover. And I wait for the day that, that I can finally put some time and money into it. The car cover can come off and I can finally do the rest of the stuff on the checklist. And until then, the Nova sits there and waits. It's sat there a while because a lot of you didn't know I've had it because you don't remember when I used to drive it here. <laughs> But uh, seeing promises get fulfilled makes you excited for the future, for, for a car, or for the things that are ahead. As we see Christ's fulfillment coming, it gives us excitement for the future. As we look at the infant in the manger, we remember the man that will be on the cross. We remember the king that will come down from heaven. You might not be whole today, fully at peace today, at harmony with yourself and with the world around you, but the fact that it has began to grow as these shepherds are made just a little bit more whole and a little bit more whole, it's a promise of things to come, of the pattern that is to come, that God will continue to do this in your life and continue to raise you up because at the end, the final place you're called to be, when you're in Jesus, when you belong to him, when you are one of those on whom his favor rests, your eternal destination, your peace, where you are called to is in wholeness, in completion, when God makes you whole for the first time. I really think part of our respecting and, and being in the presence of the season and being present in Advent is our hope for the future, the things that are ahead. I want, I, what I want to challenge us with is for the next seven days before we come back for the uh, from actually the last part of this series before Christmas is to spend some time thinking about the ways God's promises have come through our lives and to hang on to them. Turn them over in our hands. Find somewhere to write them down and read them a little bit every day. The amazing miracles that he's done, the steps he's brought you along, and to hold them and to see them because that is a place where worship comes out of our spirit. We remember the things that Jesus as an infant is a promise of who he would be as a man. The things he does in our life might be infant moves now, but they grow and they do something. And maybe we'll be able to join with those shepherds that just at the taste, just at the scent, just at the promise of the kind of wholeness that those angels are declaring, that we too would be filled with praise. I want to pray for us today. Lord, I ask that we would remember the things that you've done, that we would brush off our memories of the past. All the things that we once said, that's impossible. That'll never be me. That can never be changed, and yet you changed it. Lord, we thank you that those were not 
um, done situations, things in the past that, that have no bearing on us today, they continue to impact us every day and they continue to show us the pattern of what tomorrow would be. That I, that, that, that I am and that we are saying now, I can never be changed in that area. I'll never be whole. I'll always be broken there. But anything is possible when you are with us, Lord, when you are our wholeness. You gave us your peace. You gave us your wholeness, Lord, and we know that you will continue to do so. So, Lord, give us hope. Give us joy for the future. Lord, I pray for those in this room that have dreaded the future, that they've dreaded what's ahead, that they would rather just stay here forever. Lord, would you give them such spiritual anticipation and excitement that they would not want to stay here forever as they look forward to where you lead, where you take us. We thank you for the little promises. Just as the Messiah came, beginning as a little promise and has grown and grown and grown to deliver us, to be our Savior, to be our Messiah, to be our Lord. I thank you for the little promises that you've given, that you've fulfilled. And we wait for that great day that we're with you. Let us praise you for the past and let it impact the way we see the future. In your name we pray, amen.